Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today in the Gospel of John with a message entitled, Give Us Today Our Daily Bread. So let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 6, verses 1 to 15, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. One day after Jesus' disciples asked him to teach them how to pray, he said, Pray then like this. And then he gave them what has been called ever since the Lord's Prayer. In one of the lines in that prayer, which of course is also a model for us, is the line, give us this day our daily bread. See, we ought to pray about the basics. Jesus taught us to do that. And God is ready to give us enough food for this day. So we should ask. And today I want to talk about a very practical application of that prayer, and it's found in John chapter 6, verses 1 to 15. So let's read it now. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. You know, what's interesting about the book of John is that Jesus' ministry is portrayed as occurring during three Passovers. And that, by the way, is from the Gospel of John, is where we get the idea that Jesus' ministry lasted for about three years. The three years comes from John's description of three separate Passovers, which of course happen once every year. The first one was when he had already changed the water into wine in Cana of Galilee. Then he travels to Jerusalem, where he drove out the money changers and announced that his ministry was one in which he was cleansing Judaism. That's in John chapter 2. Now, of course, in the third and last Passover, he becomes the Passover lamb. He offers up his body as a living sacrifice for our sins. And of course, that's in John chapter 12 and following. But here, the second Passover, the middle one, is where he feeds 5,000 men, perhaps as many as 20,000 people in all, with five loaves and two fish. So what does that account actually mean? Well, Passover was the biggest and most important celebration for all of Israel. And at the time of Jesus, this was already now a 1,500-year-old practice. It was a time to remember Israel's exodus out of Egypt. You'll remember Israel was in slavery in Egypt, and Egypt was the great superpower of the day. But God sent Moses to be the deliverer of his people. 
And through Moses, God delivered a series of 10 devastating plagues on the land. The Nile turned to blood, then frogs, then gnats, flies, a plague on the Egyptian cattle, followed by boils, then hail, locusts, and darkness. All of that devastated Egypt so that the entire land was ruined. And yet still, Pharaoh had hardened his heart and would not let Israel go until the last, the 10th, the most terrible plague of all. On the night of the very first Passover, God told Israel to slaughter a lamb, a Passover lamb, and to take its blood and put it on the door frames of their houses. And then God sent out the angel of death and all of Egypt upon people and animals and every firstborn in the entire country, both men and of animals died. But that night, the angel of death passed over any house that had the blood of the lamb on its doors. That's Passover the mighty deliverance of God. And that same scene was played out year after year, every time Israel celebrated Passover. But, and this is essential to the story, Passover was also a time of expectation. Most Jews believed that it was going to be at Passover that the Messiah would come. And when he came, he would sit on David's ancient throne and he would defeat all of Israel's enemies. So you have to imagine the scene that's being played out in John chapter 6. Jesus was at the Sea of Galilee. You know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke point out that the majority of his ministry was played out in that very area. But now he's on the eastern side of the sea, which is now called the Golan Heights. And Mark 6 tells us that the reason he went there was because he had been through an exhausting pace in his ministry, and he called the disciples to join him for a break, a time of rest. And so Jesus wanted to be alone, but the crowd followed him. And just so you understand the kind of crowd this was, these people who lived in Galilee were very different from the crowd of theologians and religious teachers that lived in Jerusalem. See, these people were poor. They were hardworking people. Galilee was a place where farmers were taxed heavily, and they often lost their farms due to the wealthy elite. And there were fishing villages around the lake, and many made a subsistence wage by selling whatever fish they caught. And Herod collected taxes from them for the Romans, and these people yearned for freedom. And they loved to hear Jesus teach. And they came from every direction. And as Jesus was teaching them this time, a crisis was developing. See, it was getting late, and these people, many of whom were hungry most of the time because they lived on subsistence wages, now had nothing at all to eat. And so Jesus puts his disciples to the test. He asks Philip what to do, and Philip can only comment that it would take about three quarters of a year's wages to feed this crowd. It's as if he has paid no attention at all to Jesus' miracles in the past. But Andrew has found a boy who has five barley loaves and two fish, and it's, it's a telling statement. Barley bread was the cheapest bread you could get, and so this lad is poor, and this is probably his very small lunch. He will eat this meal this day, and that's going to be it. There will be no food for him after this. But it is enough, and Jesus has all the people sit down. He then, and I suspect, would have offered up a very typical Jewish prayer for food. You know, he would have said something that sounds like this, Blessed art thou, O Lord God, King of the universe, who bringest forth bread from the earth. And then he began to break the bread and distribute it while everybody watched. And bread just kept coming out of his hands, baskets of the stuff. I mean, more and more. And and the disciples kept 
passing it out among the thousands of people. Perhaps hours went by before everyone got something. And all the while, Jesus kept breaking those five loaves and passing them out, and finally, everyone ate. And in typical Jewish custom, they they picked up and preserved all leftovers, throwing nothing away, and there were about 12 baskets left over. I don't know how it happened next, but I imagine it has to have begun with a murmur that grew into an excitement and then to a frenzy. It started with a dawning realization of what was going on. Remember, it's Passover. And after the first Passover, when Israel, that that poverty-stricken group of slaves, came out of Egypt, they followed Moses into the desert, the wasteland. There's no food there. But every morning, the desert floor was covered with manna, the bread from heaven. And now this miracle worker, this, this healer, has given them exactly what Moses had given them. Bread came out of heaven and fed them, and suddenly everyone, I mean, they just understood. This is a prophet like Moses. This is the Messiah. This is the deliverer. He will set us free from Rome and from taxation, from oppression. We're free at last. Thank God we're free at last. The Messiah is here. And if he can do this, why, he can defeat Rome just like Moses defeated Egypt. And they tried to make him king by force. And what follows next must have been amazing. Our Bible says that Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself, and some ancient manuscripts actually say that he fled into the mountain. It means he literally ran away, but why? Remember Jesus' temptation when he began his public ministry. Matthew records what happened in Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 to 10. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And here again is that satanic temptation. Don't go to the cross. Don't become the Passover lamb. Bypass the need to suffer and die. Instead, just grab political power and conquer. Don't you know that's what people want? I want to take some time on that very theme. Those of you who know your history will know how unacceptable Jesus was for the church that emerged in the Middle Ages. They were just like the poor Galileans who wanted a political Jesus because that kind of a Jesus is so very attractive. But Jesus refuses, and that's disappointing to some. It may sound early to be planning for a winter retreat in 2020, but now is the time to make sure your spot is guaranteed for the 2020 Back to the Bible Canada and Laugh Again Southern Caribbean Cruise. Join us February 7th to 16th, 2020 for nine nights aboard Royal Caribbean's Explorer of the Seas, visiting Aruba, Curaçao, Bonaire, and more. Not only will you enjoy the beauty of the Caribbean, but throughout the trip you'll be enriched and challenged by the insightful Bible teaching of Dr. John Newfeld, experience laughs and encouragement with Laugh Again's own Phil Calloway, and enjoy special inspirational music, all while being hosted by our ministry team. So register now or find out more by visiting backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. Now don't delay, we're looking forward to seeing you on board. The roots for the desire of a political church goes back so much further than just the Middle Ages. 
You know, when Rome was already in full retreat and was collapsing, the then Christian Bishop of Rome, a man named Leo, and who has since then been called Leo the Great, actually played a major role in protecting the city from the invasion of the Huns. Civil order had been destroyed, and Leo, both a committed Christian and a very gifted administrator, took up the challenge and provided stability. He gave law and order and some measure of prosperity to an already collapsing empire. Now, that happened in the mid-fifth century. But in time, because of Leo's giftedness, the idea that the bishop of Rome took precedence over every other Christian bishop began to take root. You know, in many ways, what was initially an act of grace became in successive generations the story of a church that fell in love with political power. Eventually, not only did every other bishop need to submit to the Bishop of Rome, but so also did political leaders. There are many advantages to that system. I mean, think of the benefits. It allowed the church to have a maximum impact on the culture. It made the preaching of the gospel a prominent part of that culture. Government funds were used to build massive church structures, and the prominence of the Christian faith was seen everywhere. But this arrangement also allowed the churches to identify false teachers and and drive them out of business. And furthermore, it ensured that the Christian faith, once so vulnerable to attack and persecution, was now defended and even honored. There's nothing wrong with that. But there was a price to be paid for that kind of an arrangement. And the price is that the church forgot about a Jesus who once stood before Pontius Pilate and said, my kingdom is not of this world, otherwise my servants would have fought to prevent my arrest. But as it is, my kingdom is from another place. Notice that the real Jesus simply refused a political kingdom. And that needs to be said, and it needs to be repeated until it sinks in. Of course, in the end, when Christ returns, he will establish a political kingdom. But in the present hour, he refuses it. He refuses it so that he might have grace and mercy in this present hour, even on his enemies. He refuses it so that he can say to those who would nail him to the cross, Father, forgive them. He refuses it as a satanic ploy. Now, we live in a day when the church has lost most of the power it once had in the Middle Ages. The rise of the idea of a secular nation that would not prefer one religion over another is thought of by most to be simply normal. But in most of the world, even today, it's not normal. Muslim countries are but one example in which the force of law supports the dominant religion of that region. But we in the West do live in a day where a great many Christians in the West, well, we long for political power. Some of us are hoping that one political party would give us what we need. Now, to be sure, there's nothing wrong with seeking to have our right to worship and to evangelize and to preach protected by the rule of law. But it's quite another thing to want political power to win out over others. I mean, how seductive is the idea of a political Jesus? Now, before I get too far down the road on this thing, let me step back for a moment and give several other applications that come from this text. Notice that in the feeding of the 5,000, that physical needs sometimes do draw people to Jesus, and Jesus doesn't send them away. You know, verses 1 to 2, we notice that a large crowd followed Jesus because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. And these poor people came to Jesus because they had seen miracles. And don't think badly of them. 
Because we know even today that the church is following Jesus' lead and Christian missions does feel compelled to minister to the physical needs of people, whether it's bringing them medical care or helping the poor to become more self-sustaining. Christian missions is concerned for those who are under the oppression of drug addiction and those who are under the oppression of bandits and criminals. I mean, all of this is a concern of Jesus, and he does seek to alleviate human suffering. It's compassion, it's mercy, it's feeding the poor, and it's clothing the naked. All of that's part of the gospel. And furthermore, it's often been said that pain and sorrow are God's megaphones or God's microphones. You know, if you never think about God and one day your doctor tells you that you have cancer, well, you might start listening to God for the first time ever. Someone has a traffic accident and that changes his or her life. Someone has just lost everything through financial disaster. Your husband or wife has just told you they're leaving, and then you find they've been having a secret affair with your friend for years now. You name the trouble, and I'll tell you, human need drives us to Christ. Nothing wrong with that. God designed us so that we would run to him in the day of trouble. You know, once in a while, I'll hear someone that says to me, you know, I've been living like the devil for years, and, and now it seems wrong to me that, you know, I'm in trouble and that I should go to God now. Well, if that's you, hear me. It doesn't seem wrong to God. Psalm 50 verse 15 says, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you will honor me. God delights in saving. He delights in rescuing and helping. He's allowed hardship to come your way so that you might go to him. See, I can almost hear Jesus speaking to us in the same way he spoke with Philip. We're going to get enough bread for all of these people. I mean, that's question to us. What are you going to do about these overwhelming needs? I mean, how sad it is if we answer like Philip. You know, we get out our calculator. We conclude that we have inadequate resources. See, here's the key. Offer God what you have and let him multiply your resources for he is able. You know, William Booth, who was the founder of the Salvation Army, once asked to explain the phenomenal impact of his life. And here's what he said. He said, for the last 80 years, God has had all there is of William Booth. That's it. Give it all, see what happens. Jesus' resources and his mercy are without limit. Whether you're coming to him for mercy or asking God to use you in his kingdom, there's absolutely no lack in him. But now comes the sober warning. Simply experiencing Christ's bounty does not make us a follower of Jesus. And the problem with the crowd that was fed by Jesus is that they wanted a different kind of Messiah than he was simply wanted Jesus to be a political king that would finally and ultimately release them from their troubles and their poverty and their oppression. They wanted the groaning to end. It was fine to be fed for a day, but they wanted a king for life. And when they found out that Jesus wouldn't be that, well, eventually they would be deeply disappointed. So let me ask you again, why are you following Jesus? Let me give you all the right reasons. You need peace with God. You need to be delivered from the bondage of sin and Satan and be brought into the kingdom of light. You need eternal life. You need assurance of heaven when you die. Now, let me give you some of the wrong reasons for following Jesus. Imagine I promised you that everyone who comes to Jesus is going to have a beautiful home and a Porsche in every garage. Well, I actually know of people who do think that way, and we laugh at the thought, but how many of us expect Jesus to do something material for us, and we're disappointed when he doesn't do it the way we want? 
Maybe we want to get into that special training program at university, or we want that special job, or we want to marry that special person, or we want to have the perfect kids, and we want to have that wonderful house, and we will lose some of our passion for Jesus when we don't get those things. Listen, we got to get this straight. Why are you following Jesus? Listen, we must know what kind of a savior Jesus is. I know that most of us are not trying to make Jesus king by force. But how many of us want to use Jesus to justify our political views? And to what extent do you wish to marry Jesus to your political beliefs? See, I'm afraid that we sometimes blunt the effectiveness of our message because so many evangelical Christians have come to be aligned with one particular view of politics, be it on the right or on the left. And whenever we become identified with political agendas, we are trying to make Jesus king by force, and he will not go there. See, I believe that the ultimate test of loyalty for any believer is whether or not you're loyal to Christ and to his people ahead of your country and your politics or your history. Here's the question that all Christians need to answer. Where are your ultimate loyalties? Do you feel loyalty to Christians who live in Iraq, or do you feel a greater loyalty to your fellow countrymen who do not know Christ? You see, some of us are God and country people, not kingdom of heaven people, and that's why we're going to find Jesus to be most dissatisfying. Each of us should ask, what kind of a savior do I want? Why do I follow Jesus? If the answer is that I want a savior for my soul, well, that just changes everything, doesn't it? John, this raises so many questions, but certainly it's a reflection perhaps upon Christians, the church today. You know, in some circles, I think we try and seize political power because we think, you know, if we can make everything right today, everything's going to be perfect and and it's all going to line up, but it's really not about today. You know, it's fascinating that, uh, that this is the whole theme of John chapter 6. I mean, people want a different Jesus than the one that comes. So we want temporal concerns dealt with. And it's not that, you know, I mean, that's the whole point of giving them food to eat. Jesus is concerned about our temporal needs. But when we stop there, when we end there, and that's what we care about, well, that's when we're involved in, you know, political causes uh, rather than eternal causes and kingdom causes. And and I think this has led, you know, many today in today's church into heresy. I'm going to say it's heresy because the emphasis of the gospel is on eternal life and not on temporal kingdoms. Thanks so much, John. A lot to think about there. And remember to join us tomorrow as we continue our study in the Gospel of John right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. In the past month, we've been blessed with the opportunity to place the daily Bible teaching program of Back to the Bible Canada and Laugh Again on radio stations across Northern Canada. What a wonderful opportunity to touch so many Northern communities with trustworthy Bible teaching and messages of encouragement and hope. This month, we're inviting you to join us in launching this exciting venture and sustaining the airing of these programs moving forward. So for that purpose, perhaps you'd consider sending a one-time gift or consider becoming a monthly partner as an indication of your commitment to sustain Bible teaching programming across Canada. 
To offer your gift to support, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca. And remember to ask for this month's free ministry gift, Dr. John's new series on the Gospel of John, Why Follow Jesus.